All right, folks, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Woo, welcome to it. Um, I'm getting excited about going to New York to do the show at Town Hall on the 13th. I'll be in, uh, where am I, Ridgefield, Connecticut on the 11th, correct? I don't know if there, there might be tickets for Ridgefield, Connecticut. I'll be there on uh, the 11th at 8 p.m. I don't know if I, I can't tell if there are tickets left. It doesn't say sold out. Let's see. Pretty close to sold out. So looks like there's a few tickets. But New York is sold out on the 13th. And I've got some exciting news for you, New York people. For those of you in the New York City area, uh, we just added this to the calendar. On Sunday, November 14th, the day after my show at Town Hall, we'll be doing we'll be doing a special live taping of WTF, our first since 2015. It's going to be at the Paris Theater in Midtown Manhattan. And my guest will be Jason Bailey, author of the new book, Fun City Cinema, New York City and the Movies That Made It. We'll talk all about the great movies in New York City history at one of the great old New York City movie theaters, and we'll get the audience in on the conversation. Tickets are free, and next week we'll let you know when and how to get them, okay? Make that your morning. I think it's going to be in the morning, November 14th at the Paris Theater. Me talking to Jason Bailey and you guys hanging around. So there, put that in your noggin. Hold on to it. Bob Spitz is on the show today. He's written best-selling biographies of the Beatles, Bob Dylan, Julia Child. His new biography is on Led Zeppelin. He's also a guy who worked in the music business earlier in his life. And uh, it's quite a book. They're all quite, they're, they're all quite a books. They're all quite a, I don't know what I'm saying. I went to this doctor last week. Or it was like, a, I don't even know what you call him. Hold on. You know, maybe I'll look it up. But I don't know if I have ever felt good uh and i don't know what that means you know i like i know i'm getting older but i i don't know how i'm supposed to feel you know when people say they feel great i don't know what that means i i, I don't know that i've ever felt great so i've you know i've gotten gotten a physical I, I, everything seems to be okay my ears fucked up i don't know what that is but somebody referred me to this guy and this guy deals with you know people who want to get level somehow who don't feel quite right. And I just looked up what OMD means, Oriental Medical Doctor. I don't know what, I license acupuncturist. So I go there because I just don't feel quite right. And he goes over all of my panels and my blood work. He goes into this big uh, spiel like, you know, what's going on? Give me your complaints. I'm like, I just don't, don't feel great. And I'm 58. Got a little bit of gunk in my heart. But he looks at all my work, all the blood work. He says, you're doing great. I tell him what I'm eating. He says, you're doing great. And I'm like, okay. And then, uh, you know, we just start going over stuff, my exercise, all that stuff. And then he, like the thing that he does with, you know, he didn't give me anything. He said, I need these tests. And I guess the deal is you do these under the radar tests. Instead of doing tests that test to see if you have, uh, or try to read the test to see if you're sick, these are, I guess, preventative, and they look for, um, uh, not triggers, what's the word, markers or something of other things, Alzheimer's, insulin problems, vitamin D deficiency, vitamin deficiency, testosterone. So there's all these different tests that don't get done specifically 
at the Western doctor to see if I'm, you know, there's a marker for Alzheimer's or if my insulin's fucked up or if my food sensitivities, my testosterone's on the wane, all this stuff. And I'm like, at, at the beginning of the shtick, I was like, ah, oh, fuck, what I get myself into? Look at all these Buddhas around and jars of bugs and things. And, but by the end of it, I'm like, well, that makes sense. Why not test, do these off the grid tests to see what this is all about? But bottom line, in terms of feeling great, I get up at 6.30, 6.30, I usually work out or run up a mountain. I do podcasts. I freak out. I drink, drink a bunch of coffee. I do stand-up comedy. I do whatever I'm going to do. Play some, it's just, I have very full days, it seems, and I don't go to bed till midnight, one in the morning. So right there, it seems like prognosis is get more sleep. I don't know. But there's all these tests. You know, and I don't, you know, I'm not this kind of comic, but, uh, you know, I mean, they wanted a stool sample, which happens when you're older. Usually it's a dipstick of some kind. But uh, this woman, you know, hands me a cup, like a cup, like eight ounce cup-ish thing, a cup with a screw top. I'm like, what's this for? She's like, the stool sample. I'm like, what? And then she hands me a tray. Yeah, like an old French fry tray, the kind of thing you get fish and chips in. But this wasn't for fish and chips in. This was for poop. She's like, just, you know, lay one down in the tray, then put it in the cup. It's like, what the fuck is this? I don't mean to talk about this. It's nasty, but are they going to eyeball this stuff? Don't they have the equipment? Are, Are oriental medical doctors not allowed to have the same poop processing equipment to check stool samples? Are they just going to pick through it? What? I mean, I was just, I'm it's a French fry tray, man. Sorry. I'm sorry if that bummed you out. I'm trying. I'm trying to deal. All right. Yeah. Just take this French fry tray and fill it with poop and then put it in the cup. What? Wait, what? I don't know, man. So I knew Bob Spitz was coming over. Talk about the Zeppelin book. So I went through all the Zeppelin albums. For some reason, I listened to uh, Into the Outdoor first. And then I started in order because in through the outdoor came out when I was in high school. And in my recollection, I mean, I guess presence maybe came out before that, but like before that, I didn't know they seemed uh, like it was of another time, but everybody was profoundly excited about in through the outdoor. In the evening. But we were all pretty happy about it. I mean, it was a little different for Zepp, a little poppy, but it, it was a big thing. And then they had the 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 inner sleeve that you could hit with a brush, a wet brush, and it built in watercolor. Some people did it, some people didn't. I think I have a copy of it with the unpainted inner sleeve. But anyway, I listened to all the Zeppelin, but it turns out that Bob Spitz has been around a long time. He was actually one of Bruce Springsteen's original managers. He had managed Elton John. He wrote songs. He was in the publishing world. He played guitar. Just a bigger life than just a book about Led Zeppelin or the Beatles or Bob Dylan or Woodstock or Ronald Reagan. But the book he, that he's here to talk about, Led Zeppelin, the biography, comes out next Tuesday, November 9th. You can pre-order it right now wherever you get books. And this is me talking to Bob Spitz, whose daughter was very excited he was doing this show. I hope it works out. 
Is that a public thing, the Rolling Stones biographer? You oh, just yeah. signed a deal? I did. To be the Rolling Stones biographer. How do you like that? Is that exciting to you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I've been Dylan's biographer, the Beatles biographer, Led Zeppelin's biographer. It it puts a period. Wait, let's not forget Ronald Reagan and Julia Child. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to ruin the run. Yeah. Well, we can forget Reagan, but uh, Julia Child, you know, is uh, the documentary of my book is opening the same week as uh, the Led Zeppelin thing. Well, I mean, she was one of the the great rock and roll goddesses. <laughs> she. Uh, was. Was. Julia Childs. <laughs> a lot of people don't realize how hard she rocked. <laughs> right. I, I do. <laughs> I'm a I'm a big fan of Julia Child. Yeah, I knew her well, actually. Oh, you did. Mm-hmm. But like, like this book, the Zeppelin book, it made me go back. Like, uh, you know, I grew up. I'm younger than you, so I was already Zeppelin. To me, was already it wasn't oldies because they had established themselves as sort of eternal right. in the in the high school milieu of uh, towny rock where mm-hmm. I grew up in New Mexico. So you know, we were listening to Physical Graffiti, Houses of the Holy, and of course um, Zeppelin Four mm-hmm. uh, all the time. You know, trying to slow dance in junior high to a Stairway to Heaven, right. you know, right up till the fast part, yeah. and then everything got awkward. Yeah, but uh, I do remember when. In through the outdoor was coming out like there I was a must have been a sophomore what was that like 77 77 yeah so we were like oh my god <laughs> it was like literally the first Zep album in our in our conscious lifetime right and I just listened to it again and it's a weird record very weird and and my friend Dean says that's because uh, Jimmy was so strung out on dope and Robert Plant was on his way out the door and it was just Bonham and Jones fucking around with a synthesizer in Switzerland that's it <laughs> that's exactly right <laughs> really yeah. Crazy weird, you know, sitting there in uh, in Sweden. John Paul Jones in Sweden, not Switzerland, and, right. and, uh, and, and John Bonham. Right. And they were waiting the whole time for Jimmy. Where is Jimmy? <laughs> they, there was 10 days of, of, recor- of non-recording. They yeah. were just in the hotel. Jimmy is in his room in the dark. Yeah. Doesn't get up at all. And, in Sweden. Right. And one day they said, Jimmy Page is, is coming into the studio. Yeah. They, they actually, you know, ran down there and worked as fast as they could. Really? Because it was just when he was conscious. Exactly right. Yeah. I, I mean, I like that record. Yeah. But but like, you know, like I'm the guy who has a problem with, uh, you know, with the banjo on Gallows Pole. So like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of specific and odd about that thing. It's like for me, it's like that song is like, what a great fucking tune. Why is there banjo in it now? <laughs> exactly. But because, you know, they were sitting around the house yeah. and they had nothing to do. And there were all these instruments laying there. And Jimmy had never touched a banjo before. So real- he, he just had to play the banjo. So that's the real story of why that's there. That's exactly why it is. Um, to me, it changes the whole tone of the song. Yeah, well, they were up in uh, Robert's childhood home. Yeah, in uh, near in Wales. Yeah, and you know when you're in Wales, there's nothing going on. Right. So they had a lot of good weed. Yeah, and all these instruments, and you know they just they played folky type stuff. And sure, well they liked that. I mean, like I, I you know because I listened to. Some of the stuff, like, you know, like, I had to go, like, because they mentioned Roy Harper in the song, like, I had right. to go, you know, track down all the Roy Harper records, and, like, you know, I listened to the stuff that sort of was moving through, uh, you know, Page, anyways, at that time, 
and uh, and 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 you know how they kind of integrated that into whatever they were. Yeah, they they pulled all that stuff in the Harper stuff, the Burt Yanch stuff. Burt Yanch, yeah, an, another great guitar player. Yeah, yeah, but uh, Burt Yanch, like again, I, I I've attempted and I have a lot of his records, and I don't mind the uh, the uh, the band the tra- uh, Pentangle. Yeah, Pentangle. But uh, right. but him solo work is just Newsville to me. I I, I appreciate his guitar playing, but yeah. uh, doesn't light me up really. You know, Jimmy listened to all this stuff even as a kid he even and, took and some of it he oh yeah he swiped a lot of it yeah. anything that he could get his hands on yeah. I mean, jimmy was a great you know he was an innovator and he listened to things and then he reinterpreted them and some people said oh, oh, oh you stole the stuff but yeah music evolves man of you know, course it does and i you know and i'll get pushed back for that but the truth of the matter is it's like well now uh, they, you know, when people cut hip hop records, they'll just out of the gate cut everybody in. Of We're going to take everybody gets a check. I Absolutely. think the biggest problem with Page was he was a little reticent to maybe uh, cut Willie Dixon a check. Well, you know, I mean, really, they stole Willie Dixon's stuff. Yes. They stole a lot of the old blues things. Sure. They kept the same tune, the, almost the same words, and they asked Robert, change the words around a little. That uh, was on the Lemon Song? Uh, on the one? Lemon Song and, and, a, and a few other songs down, that down, they down, did. Down, 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 down. <laughs> exactly. But, uh, but look, man, I mean... I, you know, this is a big undertaking. Obviously, the other books you've written, Dylan and, and the Beatles, big undertakings. But, I mean, was what, it, it doesn't seem like you're out for the money. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you, you know, I mean, obviously, it's going to probably do all right with the, you know, if there are people who love Zeppelin and are willing to read. I mean, I, I throw, yeah. for some reason, I put Zeppelin in a different category as Dylan and the Beatles uh, in, terms yeah, of this, yeah. <laughs> in terms of the specific type of following they may have. I'm sure there's a lot of crossover, but no one's, uh, I, I don't know. I think that there's a. It seems that with the Beatles and and with Dylan, you're dealing with you know real magicians, and I think Jimmy Page was an aspiring magician, and that there's a tremendous amount of mystery around those other two bands. It's true, but you know Jimmy loved Dylan, absolutely adored Dylan, I'm and sure. Robert loved the Beatles. So sure. when they did a lot of their songs that went on for a half hour, yeah. you'd hear bits and pieces of "Please, Please Me" yeah. or "I Want to Hold Your Hand." Robert would just weave them into the songs as they sang them. But yeah. I, I was just like wondering because I know that. You used to, yeah. You were in the music business. I was early on. Yes, yes, yes. But like, but like, what? Like, where do you come from? Where do I come from? I come from a little town in Pennsylvania, actually, Reading, Pennsylvania, which Redding. the New York Times has declared the most impoverished city in America. Congratulations! Yes, Redding. thank you. And my parents put me on a bus to New York after college and said, "Well, what was it? What was it like? What was the world there? Like, you know, you Jewish guy? I'm a Jewish guy, and yeah. from Reading, Pennsylvania. How do you? What like were they that? doing out there? Uh, with, the Jews. With all Pennsylvania Dutch people right after the war. Yeah. It was not a great place to go, grow up being Jewish. Because really? they were all Germans. Right. But, the, but, but, they, but the Pennsylvania Dutch are a little different than just yes, straight up Germans. I were. mean, yeah. Uh, but but uh, would your dad have a business there? My dad was a doctor. Oh, okay. And of course, I was supposed to follow in the footsteps. Yeah, you're always supposed to that. until you realize, like, I can't do this. No, well, it was my parents who said it. Don't do it. Go to New York. Get the music business out of your, you know, I was a guitar player from the time I was 12. Oh, yeah? Like, what, what, uh, what year? 
Oh, God, you really want me to say that on the air. Sure, man. Uh, 19, when I was 12, 1962. So, okay, so you're coming right out of the beginning of rock of the and Beatles. roll. Yep. Uh, right out of the beginning of the Beatles. Yep. So the Beatles are the ones that like did it to you. Well, actually, this is the amazing thing. I saw them on Ed Sullivan. Yeah. The next day, I went to the bus stop, and every kid had their hair combed down like the Beatles, except one. Yeah. And that little asshole said, the Beatles are dead. They are nothing. They will be gone in two weeks. <laughs> I was that little asshole. Really? I was a Joan Fuck Baez. The Beatles. A, I was a Bob Dylan and Joan Baez You were a folky. I was a folky. Yes, oh, I was. It, you know, died in wool folky, huh? You know, like to the point where like rock and roll. So like you were the guy, but probably by that time you weren't when Dylan picked up the Strat. You're like, it's blast. <laughs> Absolutely. I got it right away. Really? Yeah. And then I became a huge Beatles fan. And, and what became, turned you? Why? Oh, uh, rubber soul turned me. Right. Oh, oh so that, that brought it all together for you. Yeah. Hey, it look, was, it's folky and it's cool. And intelligent. Oh. And gorgeous harmonies. Yeah. And who can come up with that stuff? Yeah. You know, I mean, those guys, you, you said magicians, you hit it right on the head. Well, you know, it's a weird thing, and I imagine, like, I, I know you've done some research on this as well, that, uh, you know, I, I believe that, that music is magic and, and when it works, and there's no real understanding why it works and uh, and and the reason I think that is you you can evolve through life with a song or with a record absolutely, and it keeps sort of uh, manifesting itself differently to you as you get older. And look at somebody like Dylan or Paul McCartney. I mean, they've they've spanned sixty. I know years I've had and... enough of both of them, but but but, <laughs> but yes, right. <laughs> but their music evolves and changes. So for me, yeah. I got to New York. What year is this now? Seventy one. Oh, that's good. And so I got a job. Beat I... up New York. Yeah, but I wandered into a job with the Partridge family. What? Because it always begins with the Partridge family, Does Mark. It? Yeah. Yes. And one night, I was in the office late at night. The office was closed. Hold on. What office? Uh, it was in, in on 53rd Street in New York. Yeah, well, whose office was it? it? Wes Farrell, who produced the Partridge family. All right, so this is the guy that you're working for? Yep. You get he, a job at Wes Farrell. That's a, I, I saw his name. And like, you know, didn't he have some, he was a, what was that guy? He was a songwriter, first of all. He wrote Hang On Slooping. Right. So you're a guitar player. You go to New York. How do you get a job with this guy? I needed to get into the music business. I decided to be his, his errand boy. Okay. So you're working for West Farrell. Hang On Sloopy, which was the McCoys, which was Rick Derringer. Rick Derringer on guitar. Right. And he re-recorded it himself later. Yeah. Uh, and so you're just doing, you're, you're getting the, the hang of the music business by working for the guy that represented the Partridge family? That's right. And down the hall were yeah. two guys, Mike Appel and Jimmy Criticus, who were writing the music for the show. We're in the office late one night and Mike runs in. So this in. is the pop, bubblegum pop machine. You bet. That's okay. what it is. Okay. Mike runs in and says, Bobby, you got to come down here and hear this guy. Yeah. There's a guy in the waiting room. I don't know how he got up here, yeah. but you got to hear him. Yeah. And I walked into the waiting room yeah. and there was this kind of rangy looking guy with a ratty looking girlfriend. Yeah. And he pulls out his guitar and he plays three songs and we almost fell out of our chairs. And this, yeah. is, this is Bruce Springsteen. In 1972. 71. 71. At West 
uh, uh, Farrell's office. Now we the didn't, guy who reps the Partridge family. Now we didn't want Wes to get his hands on him. You no, say. but but wait. So <laughs> Bruce comes in what to sell songs? Yeah, he's looking for a publisher. He's okay, looking right. to Try to get a deal some way. He so needed, he, he needed money. Right. So he hears this guy like he's he's writing these songs that that he thinks that Wes could move exactly. You know, to his artists or to other artists or anybody. He, yeah. he Bruce was looking for anybody who could inject a little cash into but it. I, but I think like you know I don't know that everybody realizes this because you know I watched the we read the Velvet Underground documentary right. that there were a lot of these houses, these publishing houses that were fueling this sort of like, you know, second string pop music uh, market. And Wes was a big one. Okay. He represented, you know, Tony Orlando and Dawn uh, and, and about 15 other bands. And yeah. Don Kirshner was yeah. the big one. Okay. He was also right around the corner. These are guys us. that made their fortunes in music publishing. You bet. Okay. So, so Springsteen comes in, you're a kid. They drag you down the hall. You're sitting there with the the Jersey boy. Kind of, he's probably sweaty and smelly. No, not really. I he mean, looked all right. Yeah, Bruce looked all right. You know, he he was just he, he was unformed, completely yeah. unformed. What were the songs? Oh man, he played a song. Well, he played "How to Be a Saint in the City." Yeah, he played if a song called "If I Was the Priest," which he just recorded recently. Yeah, and a third song that he's never recorded called "No Need," which is, I think, one of the most beautiful songs he he ever wrote. Oh yeah, and I happened to record it that night. I, what do you mean? Well, you know, anytime somebody so, pulled oh, out so, a guitar, so you were there. You got on the knobs. I got on the knobs, and I just I had a little tape recorder and. I still have that tape. Oh, yeah? It's beautiful, man. It really? is just gorgeous. Oh. And so we, we decided Wes can't get his hands on this guy. Because if he does, he'll try to turn him into David Cassidy. So we quit our jobs the next morning. Oh, so that's so right. So your fear was that he would he would try to take this guy and manufacture him into a a a, perform, a pop star, a, a pop performing star. artist, right? A pop uh, star. Along the lines of of the Parger family, or but I don't think Bruce would have had it. So okay, so you quit with what's he? What do you do? You tell Bruce what? what why do you quit? We went out and had a hamburger afterwards. with Bruce. No, without Bruce. Oh, you said, and Appel. Yeah, and we wanted to slap ourselves. Did we really hear this? Yeah. I mean, is this true? This guy. I mean, he, we knew right away. There was no, there, there was no hesitation. Whatsoever. He was the real deal. And this oh, is the yes. time of like everything shifting. So you're in this West Farrell office with this bubblegum pop shit. That's uh, you know that's it, it. Sort of keeps going, but but ultimately you knew what was going on in the village. You knew what was going absolutely. on absolutely in you know in rocking downtown absolutely. And you know we had was, seen Hall and Oates was that week. Billy Joel was that week. They were all p starting to perform in New York. They were all in the clubs, and it was. But what it about was the, what about downtown? What about like you know, uh, you know, CBS? Uh, was that yet? Not no, yet. no, CBS wasn't it. It was Max's Max's Kansas. Kansas City. So there was right. still so there was the Warhol shit going on downtown. Right. But you're sort of more in the uh, the mainstream. We we were uptown. Yeah. We were uptown. Okay. So what do you do? You go have a hamburger. And we decide, you know, Mike and Jimmy were 10 years older than me. They had families. I mean, they needed the insurance and Mike everything Appel. else. You bet. Uh, it didn't matter. We knew. We got out. We had a deal for Bruce within a week at Columbia Records. So you, you, but did you tell Bruce you were on the manager? Oh, absolutely. When did you, yeah. how did that go? Mike took care of that because he was. was Mi so Mike was a manager. Mike was, no, none of us were managers. Mike was a songwriter. We were, we were doing this on the fly. Yeah. We got a lawyer the next day. You know, we we got a contract whipped up. Mike talked to Bruce. They was it a reasonable a contract? Uh, it, it, it or was, was it one of those time. horrible contracts? No, well, it, it was at the time, but Bruce later sued Mike, and you know they they worked that out. So you you were repping. You had a record deal for him. 
Yeah, we went. Well, actually, Mike made a Mike was a brash guy. He picks up the phone and he calls John Hammond. Now, John Hammond for sure. those of the John people, Hammond Senior, John Hammond Senior, uh, who dis- Columbia, who d- who discovered Bessie Smith, Billy Holiday, Benny Goodman, Dylan recorded all of them, Aretha, all of them, but his Stevie son. Ray Vaughan. Mike picks up the phone. He calls John Hammond's office and he says, "We hear you have ears." If you ha- if we're going to put them to the test, yeah. we're going to see if that's really true. Hammond was livid. He was enraged. He said, "You get up in my bastard. office. Yeah. You get up in my office right away." Yeah, with this guy. Oh yeah, I've heard those tapes. Yeah. I've heard like they released that stuff. They just released it. Yeah, yeah, yeah the stuff of uh, of what the the demos he did for Columbia. Yep. Yeah, great stuff. Well, even better stuff is Bruce and I went into a studio a week later. And recorded every one of his songs, just the two of us, for copyright purposes. No one's ever heard. I have the only tape. How many of those? How many songs? Uh, we did about 45 songs. Really? Laid them down really fast. So what are you going to do with those? Uh, nothing ever. And that's why Bruce trusts me. I mean, I'm... Are you friends with Bruce? You know, I haven't seen him in a long time, and uh, but Bruce has integrity, and that's what has really made his career last. So, for what, so, long. so what do you do as a man? Your new manager, you got Bruce Springsteen. How long does that last? What do you get him? What do you do? We were making it up as we went. We yeah. we got an agent at William Morris because he was the guy I bought groups from when I was a college kid. You bought what from? Uh, we bought bands from him at, at William Morris for our college performances. Uh, so, oh wait, so you used to book bands in college? I did, and and. This was the guy you dealt with? Yeah, so I called him, and he said, "He said, oh, everybody's got a guy. I said, we've got a guy. He yeah. says, everybody's got a guy. <laughs> got guy. I said, you've got to see us. We're going to be at Max's Kansas City. He goes, oh, I just can't do this. Yeah. Anyway, he, he agrees to come down. And who's the band, the original band? It, it was Bruce and Gary Talent, Vinny on drums, Danny was still playing the organ. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and I sat in every once in a while on a few things. On guitar. Yeah, yeah, on guitar. No kidding. So this guy walks in, yeah. this agent, yeah. and he's not at all what I expected. Yeah. He looks at me and he goes, didn't expect me, did you, motherfucker? Yeah. The guy is a six-foot, gorgeous black guy in yeah. a full-length black leather jacket. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. He, he is- A duster? Yeah, and he is, and you know, he is the only black guy at the William Morris Agency. Yeah. He's their token black guy. Yeah. But he represented the Temps. He represented Stevie Wonder. Yeah. I mean, Sam McKeith was the real deal. Yeah. So he listens to Bruce, and afterwards, he walks up to me, and he grabs me by the shirt. Yeah. And he said... If this guy gets away from me, I will track you down to the ends of the earth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he booked Bruce blind for the next two years. Really? You bet. And built him. Ab- we played every every gig that was available, we did. We worked so And this is steadily. before the E Street Band. Uh, this is, be- yes, before the, I, I am before the E Street Band. <laughs> so what's the Elton John story? Well, you know, I left Bruce because Mike was... Fiddling with Bruce's money. Appel? So you didn't want to get go down with the bad scene? No, and I told Bruce about it, but Bruce, you know, Bruce was, he had just been on the cover of Time and Newsweek. And so um, I, I went to him and I just said, look, this is what's going on. He did not want to hear it because, you know, Bruce was concentrating on the band and on the Do music. Do you want to hear that he was getting fucked? He didn't, he didn't believe it. Okay. I left. 
I, I, I walked out. Good. I left everything. Save yourself. So you, at least you have uh, your, your own uh, uh, integrity intact. And I got a call from Wes Farrell's old receptionist <laughs> who said, that. I'm working for somebody new. I hear you're out of a job and he'd like to meet you. Turns out it's Elton John. Before he comes to the States? Uh, he was just about to launch Yellow Brick Road the whole tour. Oh, really? So it was after the Troubadour gigs and after- Absolutely. Okay. Really? Yeah. I mean, this was the height of Elton's popularity, really. I mean, Yellowbrook Road, I consider his masterpiece. So you're the guy? Well, I was handling him in North America. No, but I mean, like, how? why you? I mean, you, Why you, me? you because just, I'm because I, I was good at what I did. But you're a nice guy, I guess. I mean, you had one, you had one guy. You had Bruce Springsteen. hadn't even had a hit <laughs> record yet. And Elton John pre, uh, on the on the Yellow Big Road albums. Like, I need that guy. I I didn't have Elton John. I was working for a guy named Dick James, who was Elton John's okay big manager. Okay, all right, all right. So it wasn't like I need Spitz. No, but they, I need Spitz. But Dick James was in in London, yeah. and they had me handle this in in. The, oh, okay. In, so you're working for the company, and you're going to manage you're going to manage them in the states. Right. Exactly. Right. So you you set up that tour. Uh, yes, and we went from with Bruce, which the tour with Bruce was two station wagons, a bag of Fritos, a bag of Oreos, and a lot of cokes. Elton John. We got our own 747. <laughs> I mean, you know, your right. eyes bug out of your head after a while. But so that was so so okay, so this is so Elton John, now you're now you're in it. Now you like you know uh how big it can get. Yeah, you bet. And yeah. for 2 years it was fun. And then I had to get out. It it just it, But like you're dealing with Elton John, so I imagine like was this like this didn't seem to be the uh the uh, the 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 drug fueled insanity. No, no. He and I have to tell you, Elton was the such a gentleman. I mean, he used to call me Mister Bob. I went, Reg. You're like you're like a couple years older than I am. Mm. Uh, he was a sweet guy. He was really a, a hard worker. No drugs involved. And it was during the time when Elton came out, which was a very big thing. Was the Elbick Road tour? Uh, yes. Yeah, but, and you think that was his best record? I think it's his best record. Yeah, yeah I, think I think it's remarkable. I think it's amazing. Yeah, funeral for a friend. Yep. And so at the Love end, of, bleeding. after two years, I just I, I had had it. I what do you mean you had it? What, what was the matter? I had been on the road for you know on the plane six seven years. Yeah. I had no friends. I had no house. I had no. I didn't know where I was anymore. And you weren't playing guitar. Uh. Uh-uh. Uh. I wasn't. I wasn't a musician. You anymore. were just a guy managing the band. You were, I was on the hustle. Were you a road manager, or uh, were you just no? Man- we were, Elton had his own road manager. So I handled you, business. All right. So you're the guy that went to the office after the gig. That's right. Yeah. Where's the check? Where's the cash? Yep. So I needed to. I needed to get off the road. I needed to reclaim my life, and I thought, yeah, I'll be a writer. Why not? Really? That's what you did. That's it. So no more guitar. You nope. have guitars. You ever pick them up? I have one guitar that I just sold, and I'll tell you why it's uh, re- it's remarkable. Yeah, it's remarkable because you sold it for a million dollars. Well, I yeah. sold it for a lot of money because it was the first Martin D thirty five. It was handmade by Fred Martin the fourth, and my parents bought it for my fourteenth birthday for the most remarkable. It was the highest paid price for a guitar. It cost them four hundred and fifty bucks. Wow. And it didn't sell for a lot of money because C.F. Martin handmade it, and it was the first D35. It sold for a lot of money because Bruce auditioned with it, and Bruce played it on his first two albums. And you, and you and he testified to that. And I had it for 50 years and thought at the end of 50 years, I've had it. I'll buy a house with it. 
<laughs> and you bought a house with the guitar. Yeah, I did. So, but did Bruce sign off on that? You have to have, don't you have to have validation you for know, that You know, Bruce of couldn't remember how much he played with it. Yeah. Uh, he sent me a really nice note about it, but it, there are pictures of him with it. So, oh, you know, that really helped. Hey. <laughs> yeah. Well, who, who, who uh, brokered that deal for you, Norm? Uh, no, no, Heritage Auctions. We sold it through Heritage Auctions. Oh, big deal. Yep. Yep. You bought a house with a guitar. You bet. God damn it. Yep. It was fun. So so you get into writing. Yep. But like I have to assume like uh I mean obviously you're driven uh to to understand and reflect on rock uh music and rock stardom and rock geniuses, but that's not how it starts. The writing? No, it's not. I, I taught a class at the New School in New York, and every week in front of 300 people- Can anyone people, teach a class at the New School? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. What I did was I brought in rock stars and executives in the music business every week. Okay, so did you you went to college. I did. Where? A little school called Albright College in Reading, Pennsylvania. I've heard about that. Yep. It's not a It was school. all pre-med when I went to school. All right, so you got a degree in what? Uh, history and biology. So what was the class? The class was rock and roll. It was called The Making of Superstars. What year, oh, okay, so what year is this? Oh my, 78, 79. Oh, so this is uh, music business changing, sound uh, is changing. Yes, completely. Mm -hmm. And so every week these rock and roll artists would come in. Bruce did it. Dick Clark did it. You know, really? It was great people. Because you knew these guys. I did, and it was easy to get them because in those days it was still kind of cool for a rock person to be in front of a college audience. Oh, yeah. They love to talk about themselves if they you know, if they think they're getting some sort of- And this was like- Different type of respect. Yes. College with yeah, quotes, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so uh, I took those interviews and packaged them and sold them as a book, and that was my foot in the door. All right. So- in that, you know, in compiling that, yeah. you know, what what did you learn? What did I learn? Wow. In I, terms I, of like, so you, you know, they, you know, they had a thesis, yeah. rock stardom or whatever, yeah. the, the, you know, the stories of superstars. So like, I have to say that there's some sort of foundation to, to some part of your understanding and that like by bringing these guys in and, and transcribing this stuff, this was not your wisdom. It was the wisdom of many. So you know, what kind of groundwork did that lay for you in understanding? Oh, that? I mean, everything. It taught me so much about the business that I didn't even know before. Right. Because... You know, it was every echelon. It was the management. It was the the guys who promoted concerts and yes. and the artists. I mean, from everybody from Bruce and you know Van Morrison to people like Frank Barcelona, who was the most manager. Uh, he was an agent, an agent, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. And and Warner Brothers, you know, producers, and it was really kind of fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I learned everything that I could, so that when I became a biographer when i went to paul mccartney or to dylan it was they knew that i knew what i was talking about and and would understand what they were telling me so that i could interpret it in a way that spoke to them well i mean but so what but what is this thing you know like so after you 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 do this thing mm -hmm. with the uh the making of superstars yep you decide like you're gonna go after dylan that's it so what, how does that, like, how does that... It always starts, Mark, the same way. Yeah. I look to see who has written about these guys, and it's always fanboys or hacks. All the facts are either wrong 
or they try to put themselves in the in the piece with the artist yeah or you don't know where the quotes come from where do they get those quotes did they make them up they so, don't they don't source them anybody can do a biography uh, anybody can try, but if you do a, an authoritative, definitive biography... One that they sign off on. You, nobody signs off on my books. I don't do books that they they get approval on. No, but I mean, but they, but I'm talking about access, right? Access, so, right. Like, like, You're so, right. So, uh, in terms of like, you know, if I, if I decide like, I know a lot of stories about Bob Dylan, I'm going to write it in a book and call it a biography, <laughs> right? So that's that book. But you're like, I want to write a book about Bob Dylan and you're you and Bob Dylan's going to talk to you. So it's not that he signs off on it, right. but you have access. That's exactly right. And that's the difference. That is the difference. He trusts you enough to at least uh, uh, initially let you do it. Exactly. And when I went to the, to talk to Paul McCartney about doing the Beatles, we went down into his studio. It was in a house that he lived in with Linda at the time. This little unassuming Where? house in Hastings. Mm. And he said, come down to the studio. And in the studio was every instrument from Abbey Road. And so you asked me what the foundation is. He knew that I was a musician. So he starts to play some Beatles songs and he nods at me. And I realize he's nodding at me to pick up the damn guitar oh did Paul you McC you bet i did are you kidding <laughs> who would pass that up i don't know it depends how confident you are so you see that's the yeah. comfort level that these people have they're willing to talk to me because number one not only am i a musician who can understand what they're telling me but i was a, a music business manager and so that right. i know the ins and outs of things. i get that but like yeah. but you know you're dealing with um when you were dealing with dylan I mean, this is a guy that has a lot invested in being cryptic and mysterious. And he was. And, he was and cryptic like, and know, mysterious. And uh, like, he sort of got a, uh, a racket going. It's a hustle, right? Like, he's, <laughs> he's kind of a, you know, a, a P.T. Barnum of himself. Right. <laughs> but here's what happened with that. Yeah. Before I approached him, I went to his hometown where nobody had gone in Hibbing, Minnesota, Hibbing, Minnesota yeah. in, almost to the Canadian border. And it was so early in Dylan's fame that I went to his high school and they said, oh, we have all Bobby's papers downstairs, his compositions. Would, would you like them? When was this? Uh, let's see. The book's uh, out in 88, so it wasn't like he was already pretty big, dude. So like, uh, Oh, he, was, he was big, but nobody was doing the Dylan biography Oh, oh no one had gone and right. poked around. And I found a guy, when he was little, his father, Abe, used to drive Bob a half hour every week to talk to this black DJ who was playing R&B music uh, in, a, in a godforsaken little town. Yeah. And... I've, it took me six months to find a guy. He was teaching history in a St. Louis, uh, in a St. Louis school. Yeah. And when I told him that Bobby Zimmerman was Bob Dylan, he put his head in his hands and he wept. When <laughs> so when you when Dylan hears something he like that, that, he didn't know it. He had no idea. He didn't like he didn't see Bob Dylan and say that's that kid. No, he didn't realize it ah. at all. Their paths hadn't crossed. Huh. And so when, when an artist hears that you've done that kind of legwork, they're willing to well, talk. Well, yeah, because to then they're like, sort of like, this guy's going to, you know, he's going to reintroduce me to me. Exactly. I found all the people that he went to right. camp with <laughs> and his camp girlfriend. Yeah, that's so funny. So you reintroduced Bob Dylan to little Jewish Bob Dylan from Minnesota. And I did the same <laughs> thing for, for for the Beatles. With, Come on. I did. I did the same thing for the Beatles. Well, who else did you dig up for Dylan? 
Oh, let's see. Uh, all the people. That, oh, he, Bob Dylan joined a fraternity at the mm. University of Minnesota. Oh, this is a secret Dylan. This is a Dylan that Bob Dylan's trying to keep. He doesn't guy, want you to know yeah, about. This is, this is Bob Zimmerman. Yeah, you yeah, say. yeah. And so I found all his fraternity brothers. Oh, wow. You know what they say about him. Uh, Obno- obnoxious little guy. <laughs> weird. We- weird. They weird. couldn't get a handle on him. Yeah, no one can get a handle on him. Right. But you tried. It was fun, man. It was yeah, great. But so, we- but so after that, like, okay, so let's, let's, let's render it down. Yep. So, you know, you dug in and, you, you know, it, there was no end to it. And, you know, like, you know, because, you know, Dylan's hustle is deep. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and the shtick is deep and it evolves. But what did you come away with after the full arc of the thing in terms of, uh, you know, what who he is as a person? Well, look, I well, mean, Bob Dylan is on a different planet, man. I know. He's planet he, Dylan. He comes from Jupiter. Yeah. And uh, Jupiter. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I didn't make that connection. But <laughs> nice pun. Yeah. But, but anyway, he's, you know, he is the real McCoy. What does if, that mean? For me... It, he is Shakespeare to me, man. I mean, yeah. and when he was a kid, Tom Paxton told me he walked uptown with Dylan one time yeah. in the early 60s. They were playing in the village and they decided to walk up 6th Avenue to Midtown. And by yeah. the time they got there, Bob had written three songs. I mean, he said it was just pouring out of Dylan's pores. He couldn't stop it. Yeah, no, I th- I think that is that he's a vessel, and yeah. and that like there there's some sort of natural thing that happens with him in words. Yeah, that you know is uniquely his own and 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 inspired and and sort of otherworldly. But he he's got some sort of you know amazing knack for that. And then I guess over time, I I don't know. You tell me. It seems that he was able. That that gift never stopped flowing, and so he could sort of, you know, kind of adjust his personalities around it. Absolutely and, right. And he could apply it, uh, you know, his gift to whatever form he wanted to. But he also, at some point, realized that he was different from everybody else. Yeah. And when he realized he was different, he decided to behave differently. Mm. He put himself in his own little world, and he operates on a different frequency than anybody else. Really, uh, uh, Weird, yes, weird. His own time zone. You bet. No, I get it, and he's still in it, you know. And I, I get a little cranky about him because, like, I just, you know, when he when he put out that last record and the murder most foul, the eighteen minute song about the yeah, Kenny assassination, and you know, a bunch of guys your age are running around going, "It's genius." I'm like, "No, it's not." Right. It's not. No, I agree with you. <laughs> I agree with you. But, but okay, so now the Beatles—that's a whole other ball of wax. No, now you gotta. You bet. Well, what? Wait, so how the Dylan book do? Good. Yeah, it did okay. Yeah. Not too bad. It's still selling, believe it or not, all sure. these years later. Sure. So but the Beatles changed the Beatles book changed my life. That thing's like bigger than the Bible. Yeah, it really is. When I delivered it, and people don't know this, they always say, oh, you wrote a 900-page book. Yeah. Oh, no. I wrote a 2,800-page book. <laughs> we cut 1,700 pages of great stories out of that book. The Beatles, the biography, it's called. That's right. But you did another book about Woodstock before that? Uh, yes, it's called Barefoot in Babylon. Yeah, and that's and, what, you just break it down? Uh, well, what I did was, right before the 10th anniversary, I hired a private investigator. We found everybody who put it together, mm. and we retold the story <laughs> as if it were happening just Unwilling now. to give their names? Oh, no, everybody right. everybody put their name on it. It was it was a freak show. You know, it was great. Well, uh, I think it's funny that, like, you know, in the Zeppelin book, there was a conscious choice 
on behalf of Peter Grant not to put them in that festival. That's right. He decided because he's he like, that, they, why would I want them just to be another band on that fucking thing? He didn't want to go up against them. Right. So then you, how do you decide to take on the Beatles? Again, you know, I read, yeah. I read it. There were, and you love them. There were like 150 Beatles books written before mine. Yeah, and I read them all, and I just felt like there's something wrong here. So I went to Paul. What? What do you think was wrong? Well, I found out through Paul. Yeah, and he said when we were kids, yeah. we told Hunter Davies, our quote-unquote biographer, a story, and 50 percent of it we just made up. Yeah, and we have told those stories so often. We made them up to spare our wives and our girlfriends and our families some of the grittier. Parts so, like of the they story. were like, it's so funny because like when I interviewed Paul, you know, you're talking about a guy that's been a public has a public personality since he was 18, 19. oh, 15, yeah. yeah. So. You know, like that's interesting that they were that conscious of 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 of, of personal narrative to yeah. just manufacture that. They exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And they knew how to do it. Yeah. And so I said, you're you're about to be. He was just about to be sixty. I said, you want this to be your legacy? Fifty percent untrue. And he went, no. He said, it's time to tell the real story. I said, I want to tell the real story. And so he allowed me to talk to everybody who for. F- 30 years was told, if you talk about us, you're out of the circle. Family members, uh, friends, colleagues. They were that insulated? They, they had it down. Boy, they, they had a clamp on everything. Well, what was the concern? The concern was it's none of anybody else's business. Yeah, but, we, what, but like, what are the stories that they were protecting? Drug addiction? What? It wasn't even that. They, they wanted to control their brand the same way that Julia Child's family wants to control their brand. And so they get huffy about it. And so I would call Paul's cousins and his his aunts and uncles, and they'd say, oh, we can't talk to you. It's, it's funny, the difference between, you know, that idea, which and in, in knowing that, I mean, that was just, that was an, an offshoot of, of you know, even something that Wes Farrell would do. Right. Was that, you know, you, you create these guys, and you create the story, and you push the story. And you and stick to it. And don't let them talk too much. Right, exactly so, right. But, like, then when you talk about someone like Dylan's brand, it's like, it, his brand is just keep him guessing right so like they're, they're, everything's slippery you don't know what the fuck is real right exactly and, and he has personal control over that because he's he's the he is the magician he is the wizard right exactly. but this is different this is different and so i would call paul's relatives and his friends and they said oh we can't talk to you i'd say call paul yeah. they'd call me back and they'd say I can't believe this. Finally. Yes. And boy, they had waited 40 years to tell the Beatles stories and tell them they did. I couldn't. It was like the, the, the heavens opened up and a hurricane of facts and stories uh, unleashed. And George is still alive. George was, George was still alive. I talked to him weeks before he died. Mm. Uh, and I knew John from the Elton John period because they were buddies. Because I find it interesting that even now... You know, that Paul is, you know, he's old and he's cheeky and he's, you know, he, there was a moment on that, the Rick Rubin thing yeah, where it really does seem that he is still sort of um, trying to understand uh, things about his relationship with John. Absolutely. And that, and that, and that like, you know, his, the, the thing he said on the Rick Rubin thing about how he was able to now understand the, 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 the trauma that John went through and how that impacted 
his personality right. and like in being just being British, you know, you don't have those conversations. You certainly don't at not, all. Right. Absolutely certainly not right. in that era. And it's taken this long for him to integrate that stuff. Where was he with that stuff when you talk? Oh, about? still trying to work it out. In fact, mm. one of the first questions I asked him, I went to interview him first before this whole book started yeah. for the New York Times. They sent me to do an interview with Paul when one of his umpteen albums was coming out. Yeah. And the first question I said to him is, where where are you when you think about John? Where tell me how you think about him? And he 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 couldn't. I mean, it caught him off guard because I think Paul is still trying to figure out that relationship even to this day. When they were kids, when they were young, he looked up to John because it was John's band. Yeah. It wasn't Paul's band. Right. And and but he loved what they did together. These were guys yeah. who sat down every day like businessmen. They both put glasses on. They blocked out the outer world. You could not penetrate their little enclave, and they wrote music. And they, as Paul has always said, we played into each other's eyeballs, eye to eye. And that's what they did every day. Guys who were on the Dick Clark caravan and on the Beatles buses, uh, like Tommy James and those people, they said to me, we'd go back to the back of the bus where John and Paul were sitting, and we'd say, uh, you you guys want to come play cards with them? Get the fuck out of here. We're working. Those guys work. They worked like businessmen to write yeah, those songs. But I think they also, it seems like they were, you know, uh, they had a healthy competitive uh, element oh, between completely, them. Oh, completely, completely. And, 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 and I think they really, really loved each other and were constantly uh, uh, fascinated with, with each other's, you know, talent. It was until, you know, it was always John's band, but at a certain point, it became Paul's band. And when it became Paul's band, John John became resentful. Yeah? That's when was happened. that? Uh, I would say uh, after the, um, maybe around uh, Rubber Soul, oh, yeah? uh, Revolver. Yeah, because Paul took over the productions practically. Oh, really? You know, he would call the shots with George Martin. He would do the arrangements. You could see on that Rick Rubin show how Paul would would put his hands on the board. Well, yeah, because He really there, knows what he's doing in the studio. Yeah, well, there's always that thing about like, you know, uh, you know, John being the raw goods, right, and and Paul being the you Swick. know the sway, right, right, and, and like you can hear that in the different songs, and like I've I've listened to some of the. Um the John Solo stuff uh, recently. I I love what there's a there. Uh, did you watch that stuff from uh, 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 the the Yoko doc? You know the one that uh, I have seen it. Yes. Well, you know that where there's a moment. What was above us only sky or whatever. Yeah. Yep. But there's a bit where you know where he has George come over to play. And you know, and it's just John on the piano, and he's just looking at George, and without saying anything, George's like, they, there was just this weird, yeah, thing, and it, like they weren't even together that long, but to have that type of understanding, oh, like yeah. where this one-mindedness with George, where it, 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 it was beautiful, it and was like know, it was a, a second. Led Zeppelin had that exact same thing. I mean, the the very first time that all four of those guys got yeah. into the studio, they didn't know each other. Mm. Robert and, jo- and Bonzo had never met John Paul. Yeah. And they're in the studio, and they start to play. They start to jam. And at the end of the, the first number, they all break out laughing because <laughs> they saying. know. It's right there. Yeah. They had been waiting for this. Jimmy had been waiting for a band like this all his life. Bonzo had Bonzo had been in 15 bands. 
he would always fly, fly the coop at the end because he couldn't stand playing with any of these hacks. Well, you also, yeah, you said like in the book that uh, that he was also like oven to himself and and incredibly loud. Oh, and, and at the absolutely. time, like you know, whether he was getting fired or whether he was just too much for the band, right? You know, personality wise or sound wise, he just couldn't find a fit. But then the music started to change, right? And you know, and things started to level off. Well, right? Bonzo would always play with these bands in the Midlands, and they couldn't come back the second night because the owners said, you got to get rid of that. The drummer's too loud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. So, like, in the arc of, we're, we're coming around to Zeppelin, but yes, in the arc yes, of, yes. like, you know, with the Beatles, again, the same question that, you know, you know, after going through the entire, you know, whatever you got from Ringo and, and the families and the little bit from George and all of that from Paul, yep. you know, what, you know what, what did you come away with? That uh, you didn't have before. Here's what I came away with, Mark. I realized I was writing the story of my life. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, it was about me. It's mm. about all of us, where we came from, mm. how the culture grew up around us. Mm. It all came through the Beatles. It's weird. Even my generation, in a way, like I'm 58, and everything we got was second. It was already done. Right. Like so much of the music I got was done. Yeah, you, because you know. it came from the Beatles and Dylan, and it all sprung. Those are those are. I was in high school in '81. Right, but so like it was everything was all the time, and it was you know disco and new wave and well, was Zeppelin happening. was already gone in eighty one. No, I know, but it yeah. was like uh, well, the, uh, right, oh, right. I graduated in eighty one because because yeah. in through the outdoor came, but that was the that was it was already embedded. Yeah, you know, the, the Beatles were like Christmas music. The Pantheon know, was there, right? Right, the Pantheon is indestructible. Yeah. I guess it's destroyed now in a way, but but so but like before we get to Zeppelin, yeah, sure. What's with the cooking? <laughs> What's with the cooking? So, so you do a whole book on European cooking schools? Oh, you yes, you know about that. Yes, it's called the Saucier's Apprentice. Here's what happened after the Beatles. You're I like, was enough music. I want to eat. No, what? I was. Uh, uh, my my marriage had fallen apart. Sorry, uh, I had moved out of New York, which I was my favorite city in the world. It was part of my soul. And I'm stranded here uh, with my lovely daughter, who mm. was 11 years old. In L.A.? Uh, in New York. Okay. And I, we had moved to Connecticut. Okay. And I was, I was out, of, out of it. And I yeah. just thought, I got to get away. Mm. I had been working on The Beatles took eight and a half years to write. Yeah, of course. I mean, it was a whole lifetime. How long did Dylan take? I was broke. Dylan took like four years. Uh -huh. But I, I was broke. The marriage was gone. I did whatever anybody in their, that right mind. And I had just turned 50. Mm. I ran away to Europe to learn how to cook. I went to 16 cooking schools in France and Italy. This is the midlife crisis. This was. This <laughs> is this. This is what's going to stop you from falling into a pit of darkness. Well, it wasn't quite a midlife crisis because I got a lot paid a lot of money for that book. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, so so it wasn't you just wanted to learn how to cook you got a deal oh i got a deal yeah. yes my my agent called it a a prospective adventure oh good yes but it was a lifesaver it was and and i i learned how to breathe again and i learned how to cook i mean i really learned how to cook and when i got back i knew i had to write julia child's biography really because mm -hmm. you were so excited about what what was it that like okay so not unlike you know, knowing how the sausage is made in the music business, which you learned early on, <laughs> right. I, I imagine that you know, sort of, you know, understanding all the levels of food preparation. You know, th and this is before the world of foodies. Yep. That you realize, like there, there are nuances and levels and and different schools of thought. You know, even just around mushrooms. True. So, so, so you were able to approach someone like Julia Child with this 
as the foundation. Well, actually, I had met Julia Child years before I started the Beatles. I was a journalist, and I was in Italy, uh-huh. and I got a call from the Italian tourist board, and they said, we hear you're over there working. Do you have a little spare time to help us out? And I said, sure. They said, would you like to be an escort for an older woman? And I went... <laughs> I don't do that kind of work. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. They yeah. said, it's Julia Child. And I said, I'll be right over. Yeah, Where yeah. is she? Oh. Julia wanted to travel through Italy. Yeah. And she was 80 years old. Her legs were given out. And she needed a young guy to, I was 40 something. Yeah. And she needed a young guy to hold on to. And so for a month, she and I did nothing but eat and talk. Mm. And I ran a tape recorder. Yeah. And so when we got back, I said, Julia, I want to write your biography. So you had all that stuff. I did. Okay. Uh, I said, I want to write your biography. And she said, oh, somebody else is doing it. Uh, but they, And then I got a letter from her six weeks later yeah. and said, but they, that person is making me feel like I'm already dead. So I'd like you to talk to you about it. But I had just gotten the Beatles book. Mm. And by the time I was done with that, Julia had died. Mm. So I decided after that that I would write her biography. How'd that one do? Uh, that is done very well, and the same week that Led Zeppelin launches, my book launches, a documentary of the, my Julia Child book launches. It'll be in the theaters, produced and directed by the same people who did RBG, the same two women who Oh, that's did great. RBG. So, well, that's it. It's based on your book. It's based on my now, book. Now, that book, I would imagine, like, what, that, is that the bestseller? Uh, no, the, the Beatles, Beatles is the bestseller. Yeah, it continues to. Sure. It sent my daughter to college. The Beatles. Yeah. So you bought a house with a guitar, and the Beatles book sent your yeah, daughter. Yeah, to so college. isn't that great? That's yeah. the way it works, pal. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> but but you do seem to have a passion for it. So after the rock goddess uh, that is Julia Child. Yeah. Now, like, like, cause, like, look, man, I love Led Zeppelin, and I, you know, and I, and I, I know what I know about the like the thing that fascinates me about this period in when they started in Britain is that is that the UK is a small country right. and all these fuckers are around like all of them all the people that come out of Britain are around not only that Jimmy Page Jeff Beck Eric Clapton and Glyn Johns all live within one mile of each other. Is that other crazy? As kids. Where's Peter Something's Green? Something's in the water. Where's Peter Green in relation to all this? Peter Green is around, but Peter is already working with the, professionally. With, uh, with Fleetwood. Uh, oh, no, no. With Way John Mayo. Yeah, John Mayo. Yeah. So, and, and he replaced Clapton. That's yeah, right. right. But okay, so, but what, now Zeppelin, like why Zeppelin all of a sudden? Because for you. For me? Yeah. Well, it's my editor called me while I was working on a, a different book, and he said, I've always, you, I want to make a deal with you to write a book. And I said, but you just made a deal. I'm doing something else. What was it? It was Ronald Reagan. Oh. And he said, no, why, no, this is a- fuck, why, would you, why did you do Ronald Reagan? After the Beatles and after <laughs> Julia Child, <laughs> my wife, who was a, a, the best writer in the yeah. family, she's a, she's a nonfiction writer, sat down with me and she said, you got to do something else as important. And we went through everybody. Like, who could I do? Uh, you know, we looked at all the Kennedy Center honorees and the Medal of Honor winners. Yeah. And, she, and they all had to f- satisfy one criteria. Yes. And that is all my books are about two things. Someone who is beloved and someone who has changed the culture. Right. And we couldn't find anybody else who, was, who fit that bill. I mean, we, we looked for months. And finally, she said to me, what about Ronald Reagan? And I went, no way. I yeah. didn't vote for him twice. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I've never voted for a Republican in my life. Yeah. 
But then I started looking at his story, and I did the same thing I did with the Beatles and with with uh, Dylan. Yeah, the books about him I thought were either policy wonk books. Yeah, this is a guy who was a Hollywood movie star. He was the sportscaster in the Midwest. He was the voice of the yeah, Midwest. Yeah, yeah. He was a, a a governor and a president, and I wanted to find out why. And Nancy Reagan, for some reason allowed me to be the first person ever to see all of his private papers not the ones that are in the Reagan library yeah the ones that were in his desk that he always referred yeah. to yeah and they hadn't been unpacked since yeah. he left the Oval Office yeah were they in impressive or uh, no not really <laughs> uh, what they were was and and this is so odd yeah. where he got most of his ideas from mm. was readers digest sure he read these heartfelt stories, and he would underline them and annotate them. Well, that was his gift to tap into this sort of uh, mundane, yes. emotional reality of uh, the culture that right. he was uh, trying to define. And I have now lost every yeah. Republican reader for my Zeppelin book because of you. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So during that, so the Reagan thing, then the agent tells you that what? He said, I, I, I want you to do the book that I have always dreamed about. It's about a band that has sold more records than anybody but the Beatles. Mm. And I thought, who could that be? I said, it's not, it's not the Stones and certainly not the Who. Elvis? No, no way. Pink Floyd? And then, yeah. And then I thought, oh, God, he wants me to write about ABBA. <laughs> I can't do that. Yeah. He said, no, it's, it's Led Zeppelin. And I have to tell you, my heart sunk. And here's why. I had 20,000 al vinyl albums in my collection and not a single Led Zeppelin album. What the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah, I mean, if you would ask me what songs they sang, I might have been able to name Whole Lot of Love and Stairway, and that's it. You have 20,000 records mm -hmm. now? Yep. Really? Mm-hmm. What are you doing with them? I listen to them, man. All right. Yeah, I mean, that's my life there. Yeah. Those are my babies. Yeah. Uh, Where are they, New York? They're in New York, yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I went and I, I thought, this is, they changed, they changed the culture. And so you were what you're telling me is you weren't a Zeppelin fan. No, I was on the road with Bruce and Elton during that well, time. Well, I know also that, yeah, they happened a little older though. Like they were like, I guess, well, that's not true. No, they were, no, they, they were, were right the same there. time. They were right. right there. So I was, I felt I was the perfect person to write their book because I was this empty vessel and I went in there not knowing anything and I let them fill me up. For months, I did nothing but listen to their music as a musician. For the first time at, at your age, right. you're, you're sort of like taking on Zeppelin. With my background, Did yes. you love it? I loved it. And not only that, I would get guys, you know, you want to hear about Bonzo? I got Carmine Apice, who was the drummer from sure. Vanilla Fudge, yeah. to sit with me and explain what Bonzo's doing. J Jimmy Page, you get Jeff Beck to explain to you. You know, I mean, I'm a guitar player, so I could understand it. Uh, Terry Reed, you know, you want to know why they hired Robert? Terry I Reed yeah, told yeah. me the whole story about yeah. how Robert became how the well, Terry Reed was sort of like, no, I got my own thing going. Right. But exactly. he, he claims that like, you know, he's okay with that. Yes, right. right. Yeah. But he wasn't the lead singer of Led Zeppelin, exactly, of course. Yeah. But I mean, nobody had ever really heard the real story of how Robert became the singer. And Terry laid it out for me. And that's the thing about the book. You were behind the scenes in every single step of Led Zeppelin's career. 
I, I talked to everybody who was involved with them. Everybody who, I could who get was my hands the, like some of the like who who do you like talking to the most? Who was well, most surprising? Well, Glenn Johns was terrific. I yeah, mean, he he was unbelievable. the producer. Yes, yeah. I mean, Glenn was Jimmy's boyhood buddy. You right. know, he sat there. But there was a guy like named Roger Mayer. Roger was a scientist. Who was Roger Mayer? He invented at Jimmy's request. The fuzz box, so you could play fuzz guitar. And he went on to do it for, you know, Jimi Hendrix and for Stevie Wonder. And these were kids. They were they were at 17 years old sitting around Jimmy's living room. Sunday afternoon, Jimmy would sit there with Jeff Beck, Roger Mayer, who had the fuzz box. And every once in a while, uh, you know, uh, Eric would drop in. <laughs> I mean, this is... In, insane. Yeah, but kids. I found I found Jimmy's old bands that all the bandmates. The Fuzzbox. Did they? Did that become a brand? Was that a Big Muff? Yeah, what it was, was it? a monster. It which be, which everybody? Brand? What was it? Big Muff. What, what was the name of the box? Uh, it was called the Fuzzbox. The Fuzzbox. Yeah, the oh. Fuzzbox, and everybody used it. Yeah, everybody. Uh, the Beatles used it. You know, every everyone did. Huh. So you know, there there were. I mean, it was just. I, I talked to all the man the the management people and and the the roadies. So these the, guys, like you know, like uh, Jimmy was kicking around, right? He was like he was sort of. He, was he a prodigy or was just a an efficient guitar player? Uh, Jimmy was a prodigy. Mm. I mean, and and everybody knew it. Mm. And then he became a session player at the age of eighteen. Right. Uh, Glenn Johns gave him his first session work because mm -hmm. Glenn Glenn had n no idea what to do with his life and became an engineer. Right. Then he hired Jimmy, his right. boyhood pal. Right. Uh, all of a sudden, Jimmy is the most important guitarist on the British recording scene because he's not only playing behind, he, he played with, on the early Who's records, on the Kinks records. My favorite, one of my favorite Jimmy solos is on that Joe Cocker record. Yeah, on, with a little on, help. On, uh, no, on Bye Bye Blackbird. Bye Bye Blackbird Holy as well. Holy shit. You bet. That fucking thing. But is. he also played on like Burt Bacharach sessions. He did Goldfinger with Shirley Basie. Mm. I mean, you know, and John Paul was on that session as well. John Paul, another guy, just a, a, a sort of a, a chameleon in terms of you know, what he's able to do. Glenn Johns told me when he heard that John Paul was going to be in Led Zeppelin, he knew the band would be great because he said, this is what he said to me, that guy is a genius musician. He can play anything and be anyone to anybody. Huh. And he knew it. So there was the kernel of the band. Right. So, well, there, but, there, but what, how did it, so Jimmy was already in the Yardbirds. He had just joined the Yardbirds. After the session work. Yes, and that is a, one of the best stories in the book. Yeah. And you know where it came from? My buddy, my dearest friend, Graham Nash. Graham was there that night that Jimmy decided to join the Yardbirds because the Yardbirds were- He was in the Hollies, right? He was, he was playing with the Hollies. Yeah. And they were, they were playing at, at, at an Oxford hoity-toity ball, graduation ball. The Hollies were. And the Yardbirds. Okay. And the Yardbirds got so drunk, falling down dead drunk. Yeah. Jimmy was sitting in the audience with Jeff yeah. Page, uh, Jeff, Jeff Beck, Beck, yeah, and said, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. I want to be part mm -hmm. of this. Yeah. And the band fell apart that night after, after the show. Yeah. Uh, they just, just well, they were about to disband when Jimmy said, I'll play with you. It'll be like two guitars, Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page. With the Yardbirds, man, yeah. and they—they they only did like one record, though, right? The two, with they, the two they, of them, they did one record, and they also went on a Dick Clark Caravan tour. Uh -huh. It was a nightmare because Jeff, 
Jeff is, I think Jeff Beck is the greatest guitarist of all time. I know, but I can't listen to him that much. Well, he's a head case, you see, and he never showed up for gigs. When, after, after that fell apart and he joined with Carmine Apiece and in, in Beck Bogart Apiece, Carmine told me we had this huge tour after the album came out. Jeff did two or three dates and decided he wasn't going to play anymore. I like the Jeff Beck group record, Truth. Yep. Truth, to me, is one one of the most important albums of the 60s. Probably, yeah. Because it changes everything. Yeah. It really... I like the way he plays, but I don't don't find myself listening to him. uh, (laughs) Billy uh, Gibbons told me a funny story. The ZZ Top, because mm-hmm. they opened for Hendrix and when Hendrix right. toured Texas, and uh, he said that you know, like he went over to the hotel where Hendrix was staying, and Hendrix and Hendrix had had a, a full like sort of stereo console you know set up uh, in his bedroom, yeah. and uh, and Billy went over there. He says, and Hendrix is like, let's go figure out what Jeff Beck is doing. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you a great story. It's in my book. Yeah, where Terry Reed said he was sitting in a bar. In the the two eyes, no, it was the bag of nails in in the UK, mm. and he he sees this guy, and he said, "Oh, I know this guy. I met him in the United States. It's Jimmy." He walks over, and Jimmy he said, "What are you doing here, Jimmy?" He goes, "I'm going to play tonight, man. I'm going to play here. Uh, it, it'll be fun. You'll yeah. see." All of a sudden, the doors open, and who comes to watch this guy play? Everybody. Pete yeah. Townsend. Oh, I Jeff think I know Beck. this story. Terry Reed told you this story? Yeah. I think he told me this story. Paul, Go ahead. Paul yeah. McCartney. Yeah, yeah. Uh, everybody is there. I mean- Clapton. Uh, Clapton. Jimmy Page Brian couldn't Jones make it. Brian Jones is in the story. Brian Jones yeah, yeah. is there. Everybody. And they're all sitting in the front row. Yeah, 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 yeah. But he said, Jimmy says to Terry Reed, he said, I- I'm going to play tonight. Oh, I- he- no, he's on stage. And he goes, I'm going to play a little song tonight that's all dear to your hearts. And it's now number one on the charts. And everybody's going- Number one, what could it be? What's he going to play? And then you hear, and he goes into Wild Thing. And Terry Reed said, we all hated that song. We loathed it. And all of a sudden, Jimmy turns it into the greatest rock and roll song that you've ever heard. The song that Terry Reed told me was like he was at the bar. Right. And uh, Brian Jones came up to the bar. I think it was Brian Jones and said, like, I had to get out. For, I was up front. I had to leave because of the flooding. Yeah, right. You Everyone's know, crying. Yeah, yeah. All, yeah, the, guitar all, players cr- all the guitar players are <laughs> yeah. crying. Yeah, the stories in my book told from about 10 different people who were there that Oh, night. really? Yeah. Well, in, in the Zeppelin book? In the Zeppelin book, yeah. And why do you set that up? Because it's it's a touchstone. It's a turning point of rock and roll, what's going on in the 60s. You know, what was going on was first, you know, they were all in these little bands that played skiffle. Mm. And then the Beatles start. And then the the Yardbirds and the Stones were playing blues. And so it's an amalgam of everything. I had to go back to the beginning to show you what was going on in the UK so that you'd understand what was happening by the time Jimmy puts Led Zeppelin together. So, yeah. you know, you have to go back to the beginning. I I always believe in every book I've ever written that you don't know who someone is until you know where they come from. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's why I always go back to, to you know, where, what, what are the roots? Sure, sure. And so not only do we see the Jimi Hendrix, Terry Reed at the bar, but also there's a scene in there that nobody's ever heard before. And it's a night in a little dingy trap in um, in Ealing, which is right outside of Lon- in northern London, yeah, in a bar where 
a guy named Elmo Lewis has come to play. Now, Elmo Lewis is really Brian Jones, mm-hmm. and he's playing with Paul Jones, who is the harmonica player, but the lead singer for Manfred Mann. Yeah. And they're playing blues, and there's two guys standing at the bar watching this, and those two guys are Mick and Keith. And that's the night they meet Brian Jones. Really? And I had five different people tell, who were there that night tell me the story. Huh. So I, I thought to set the, the stage for Led Zeppelin, you have to go back to the beginning of all of this. And that's why the book's so long. But, but I think the important thing about capturing what was going on at that time where everybody was sort of like, you know, that it was active growth on everyone's you part. Bet. You bet. Because, like, you know, Terry Reed's doing his own weird kind of world music. Uh, you know, he's like, you know, lost in this uh, whole other zone of, of sort of uh, what is it, kind of rock folk weird shit, right? Uh, yeah. And then it, also there's Fairport Convention, which is either With more, Richard Thompson. more folky. But then, then yeah. there's also those kind of like old school belters, you know, like Tom Jones and you that, bet. that, that school of a uh, british uh frank uh, frank ifield the same soul kind of music guys. british right. soul music yeah. right and then you've got the 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 blues stalwarts st- uh like uh with with mayall and then the guys all the guys that come out of mayall right you know who are now going you know full on you know b- blowing it up with like you know clapton when he finally got hold of that les paul and and did uh you know that that Bino record is like that's it's fabulous. It's the last good Clapton record. You <laughs> bet. <laughs> and and then you know it's everybody who came out of the Yardbirds too. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean everybody. You know uh, Jeff Beck and but Jimmy. Just, and right. But I see what Clapton. you're getting at. Yep. You know, in terms even with Skiffle that you know like uh, and even with Roy Harper that there was all this stuff was going on and and Jimmy's like we're gonna wrangle it all together. You bet. And he he ropes in folk music. Yeah, he brings in the blues for sure. He brings in traditional, and he brings in shit kicking rock and roll. Well, then he he kind of is at the forefront of of riff driven rock. You bet that he kind of you know that was you know right. like I mean I mean that's pre Sabbath right oh pre Sabbath Jimmy had a sound in his head yeah. that nobody else had right and he wanted to get that sound out and that's why it took him so long to put that band together but when he did he controlled the sound because he it was it was in his head for years mm. and nobody else had this sound this is the beginning and, and of, what you hear on Zeppelin one is uh, it or was it Zeppelin uh, 2? I think Zeppelin 2, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah, you you yeah. hear it on Zeppelin 2. But yeah. it's the beginning of Stadium Rock. You know, that's Yeah, it. but they didn't know that. Oh, of course not. Of course not. But it's there. All the kernels are there. And, you know, if you say uh, Led Zeppelin changed the culture, they changed the culture. You know, they really did. They. It was the end of the 60s. That ethos is gone. Peace and love is is finished. Altamont had happened, and they were ready for a new sound. And, uh, you know, the epigraph of my book is, it's it's a strange one. First, there's a quote from John Landau, Bruce's manager, yeah. who was a rock critic yeah. at the time. And he says, this will pass. All this greed and avaricious loud noise will pass. And it's a review of Led Zeppelin's first gig. And under it, Jimmy says... Fuck the 60s. We're going to chart the new decade. Mm. He was leaving all of those guys behind. He did not care. He wanted a new sound, and he w- he was going to, to spark it. Well, they did. They you know, did. And, and, but, you know, it's, it's interesting that it's only really five records, isn't it? it uh, yes. It, and Four it's or like, five. It's like any band other than the Beatles. 
it's it's any band only has four or five great records. But they were that era of rock. You know, they were at the, they invented this thing. I mean, you know, in in the sense that like it was always there. Mm-hmm. You know, this sort of like uh, yeah, yeah, Hank Williams, all of them. Yeah, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis, everyone. There were a lot of fuck ups all the time. But the, the, with the money that Zeppelin had and 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 how. You know, they used it and how how they showed it off and, and what they allowed themselves to get involved. The decadence of it was new. And here's why. Before this, it was always weed rock. It became cocaine rock. Uh-huh. And that's what changed And dope. It. Yeah. And that really changed it in a big way. That's what, you know, it's, it, it opened up a can of worms and then- But it let them drink more. It did. It did. I mean, that was really the thing about Coke for like guys like Bonham and for people like, you know, uh, who were boozers is that like with Coke, I mean, most people talk about Coke as being the thing that ruined production sound Mm -hmm. in the 80s. Right. But I think that what Coke enabled the 70s to do when it first came around was you could stay up and get fucked up for longer and and do weirder shit. They stayed up for weeks. There were times Jimmy said, oh, I haven't slept in two weeks. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Or he, or he would go into the studio and come out two days later without having slept to, just to, you know, produce something. Right. So so that's, you know, so that's what, this Zeppelin 3 and 4? Uh, Zeppelin 3, 4 and, and... Houses? And houses, yeah. Really? Yep. When did you get involved with Dope? Right after that. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and, and it was- He had to come down. Yeah. He needed some sleep. (laughs) Right. And it, and it got, it got really dangerous because uh, there's a scene in the book uh, where they're about to play the Silver Dome and they go to get Jimmy in his room and Jimmy is, he is gone. I mean, he is, he is practically in a coma. They slapped him. They threw cold water on him. They walked him around the room. They couldn't get him up. And, uh, and, and, you know, he, he barely made it. And yet his eyes blinked open at a certain point. He goes out and he plays the two, three hour gig. I've seen that happen with junkies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was like, there were definitely shows in that time where he was so emaciated and he looked so lean and weird and, yeah. And thin. But, uh, but in terms of, of, and he got sloppy too. I mean, he was always on purpose sloppy, but you're saying he got real sloppy? Oh, he got real. There were, there were times. Playing there, wise? Yes. There were times he's got the double neck guitar mm. and he's cording on one neck, but strumming on the other neck. Oh, really? And he oh. didn't know that he was doing it. So, you know? Oh, that's so, sad. Yeah, that's he was, funny. he was totally out Well, I mean, he sort of mastered this thing. Like I, when I listen to, 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 to Paige as a guitar player, it's interesting because there's always a, a, a weird kind of um, sloppiness and distortion to it. That that I have to assume was intentional. Yes, and it's what gives them a garage band sound, which is great. I oh mean, yeah, that's, that's what we always want out of rock and roll. I don't know, like the the records I I go back to the most are Houses. Probably I go back to Houses of the Holy. The most. Houses is fabulous. I'm I'm a presence guy myself. To tell you, the oh time. yeah, I almost I, listened to that today. I loved it because they recorded it in twelve days. That's the way rock and roll should be made. You know, the Beatles would go in the studio yeah. and they would massage everything. But they wouldn't. You How know. fucked up is Jimmy on presence? Oh, though? very, very. Because it sounds like the production seems like it's done in a like a storage container. Am yeah, I wrong? Yeah. Oh, he 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 was out of it for most of it, and then boom, you know, he blinks awake. He comes down, and they cut it quickly. You know, really fast. Well, tell me a little bit about like you know, because throughout the book, I mean, really, you know, when you talk about Zeppelin, you know, all you know, the mastermind. 
outside of the music was Peter Grant, right? Uh, yeah, y- yes and no. I mean, he was the road manager. Uh, he was the, the manager. manager, right? But like, you know, there's just these stories. Like, I talked to, I think it was Neil Preston, the photographer. I know Neil. Yeah, yeah who took that picture from the the helicopter of right. the Zeppelin concert for Peter Grant, who brought it to NASA to to, to have them use their their technology to figure out how many people were actually at because he was getting paid by the head. Exactly. Right. I fucking love that. Story. Yeah. I, oh, he did that all the time. I mean, there were there were he. St- stood by that band. He was a manager. You know, managers, they have a road manager, and they let the road manager handle everything. Yeah, like bathrooms and food. and Right, and the manager's in the office and picks up the check. Right. Peter Grant never left their side. He was on every tour. He made sure he was backstage. Isn't that who Tony Hendricks is based on from Spinal Tap? Yes, it is. And of course, that, you know, that last concert they ever did in America built with Bill Graham, that is Spinal Tap because Bill built all kinds of, you know, stone pillars and everything. Whoever saw that decided, you know, that's the way they would would do the the Spinal Tap parody. yeah. Yeah. But Peter was, he's dead, right, Peter Grant? He is, yeah. yes, and he didn't go to heaven. He went somewhere else. Well, I mean, what is the myth The myth around him? I mean, did the band get along with him all the way through? Was they it- loved him. They loved Peter Grant. But it was Peter who really introduced the band to Coke, and it was Peter who always had a bag, a two-pound bag of Coke. Um, That's a lot. <laughs> it, oh, yeah. But that is a modest amount for what they had on those tours. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, they had so much money, they didn't know what to do with it. And so a lot of it was just spent on drugs. Now, what, now, how, how did the band start to like, what, what was happening within the band in, in, in terms of the unit, uh, like between page and plant? When did, when did things become strained? Who was it strained between? Yeah. Well, it had all, again, it had always been Jimmy's band. Robert was a 19-year-old kid, you know, when he start, when he joins. He has no confidence Was whatsoever. he a blues singer? He was a blues singer, but then he got into uh, uh, Haight-Ashbury type of stuff, Moby Grape, and yeah, things was, like that. It's a good band. Yeah, really, yeah. and Love. Yeah. You know, yeah. really, oh, yeah. really good oh, yeah. bands. Yeah. So Robert comes in as a total novice. Not only does he see uh, this guy who was an amazing studio musician, yeah. but... Jimmy had a lot of wealth. He owned a house that was on the Thames. It was a houseboat. He had a gorgeous American girlfriend. Yeah. He had umpteen guitars. Yeah. Robert was broke. Yeah. And so, you know, everything was... Robert had no confidence through the first two albums. Mm. All of a sudden, Robert Robert realizes he's bringing a lot to this band. On three? Yeah, mm. exactly. Yeah. And he's got... He's starting to write... Jimmy's starting to look to him to, to you know, produce great lyrics. Yeah. And as that develops, it's the same thing that happens in every band. They grow up and they grow apart. You know, these guys are kids when they start. All of a sudden, they're 29-year-old men. Yeah. And they've been together too long. Yeah. They know everybody's foibles. Yeah. Uh, but it started with them, I would say, uh, I guess when, when Jimmy got into heroin, Robert, After houses, yeah, Robert checked out. Mm-hmm. He, he just checked out, and then of course, when his son dies, Robert Robert starts to blame everything on this band. Really, for every bad, you know, he was in a in a terrible car accident with his wife, where she almost died, and his kids had a broken arm and a broken leg. Yeah, and, um, it it Robert starts to feel that there's some bad mojo, and he's starting to blame it on. 
you know, the way Jimmy behaves, the way the pace of the band well, is unrelenting. Do you talk about the Crowley shit? And the Crowley shit, boy. And now we should talk about that okay. because Alistair Crowley, um, Jimmy starts to read Alistair Crowley's was book. It, was he alive at that? No, he was alive? dead. He was okay. dead. And he's he is, in one word, an occultist. Yeah, yeah. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Right. Got now, it. Do yeah. what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law is a wonderful thing for an 11-year-old boy to hear. You know, Jimmy reads this when he's 11 and thinks, this guy, this guy is saying I can do whatever I want in my life. Yeah. In fact, Jimmy had that inscribed on the runout around the second album. No, I don't have one of those. Yeah. Yeah. And and nobody knew what it meant. But yeah. it's from Alistair Crowley. Yeah. Crowley though was a nut job. I mean, it was all about sex. It was all it, it was, was ritualistic witchcraft. You bet. Uh, like a, a, a primer on, on the full arc of ritualistic witchcraft. To the to the extent that he, he said we could sacrifice a young boy on the altar, which yeah. would be the ultimate. Yeah. Jimmy read this stuff and had to be a part of it. So he eventually- At 11? He he was intrigued at 11, the same way I was intrigued with the Hardy Boys. Sure. You know? Yeah. Uh, but as he grows up, Jimmy starts to have whips and chains in his suitcase on, yeah. and handcuffs on the tours. Uh-huh. For, and this is early- For the ladies? With, uh, yeah. And this yeah. is early with the Yardbirds. Yeah. You know? Okay. So he's-, he's, he's uh, And he's reading Crowley- The and dark getting, arts guy. He's getting deeper into it. When he gets some money, he buys Crowley's house, he buys Crowley's robes, he has Crowley's uh, original sets of books, he has his tarot cards. I mean, he was really into this. And so he was doing ritual. He was. Yeah. He was. And, and that, that also turned Robert away from him. Well, Rob- I mean, well, that, well, that would, what I'm saying is that, you know, if, <laughs> if Robert's more of a, a folk-minded person, a man of the people, you know, and, you know, you're... Your uh, your bandmate is uh, is opening up the uh, portals to the dark places. You're right. The, the mojo is going to you know you're going to get paranoid of the mojo release problem. Absolutely. And, yeah. and Robert knew it was all mumbo jumbo because but Robert until he until he starts to get freaked out. Right. He does. But the, Robert's saving grace was he's a smart guy. Yeah. You know he was a great student. He reads. Yeah. Incessantly. Yeah. And and he's a thoughtful guy. And so it just, it didn't work. It just wasn't working. And, and like the Stones, like with Keith, Jimmy always kept everybody waiting. They never knew what was going to happen. They never knew if he was going to show up for a rehearsal. Yeah. Uh, and that pissed Robert off too. And, and the other two, the rhythm section, yeah. I mean, you know, Bonzo's doing his own trip and, you know, they just, they, they deal with it. Bonzo is a a, a thirty a twenty eight year old man with the the temperance of a twelve year old. Okay, you know he he was a man out of control. Yeah, he couldn't control himself. He he fought with his fists all the time. Mm. He never gave anybody yeah. a, a, a much. But you know, I told you I'd never really listened to Led Zeppelin. Yeah. I put those cans on and I listened to them and Bonzo is the Bonzo was the heart and soul of that band. Oh, I mean, fucking on physical graffiti too. Yeah. Bonzo, you Ooh. listen to those drums. They are so sharp and so in control. Oh, that's a big record. That was before houses, wasn't it? It was. So yeah. like so they went through all that. Yep. Wow, man. That's a record, man. Yeah. I mean they went through four too. L Z four. You know Four uh, and then and then graffiti and then houses. You bet. And and the live one. Yep. Mm. 
Pretty amazing, huh? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great story. I really, I loved writing this. Well, you did. You wrote another Bible. I did. And you know, we all, they gave the the Riot House its name, too, in in L.A. I mean, it was always called the Hyatt House before they got there. I see it every night. I work at the comedy store almost every night. Right. I just look at that place. Yep. I mean, so they they changed the whole culture of that as well, and the whole groupie scene. It grew up around them. Yep. Well, congratulations. Thank you, Mark. Thanks. It was fun. And now, like, I got to, like, you know, I, I read bits and pieces. Now I got to go in. Read the whole book, man. Well, it's better <laughs> It's better that I don't before I talk to you. In the same way, it was better for you not to uh, be too into Zeppelin. I get it. Because, like, I would have been just sort of like, oh, I, I tell the story. Yeah, that, right. yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. No, Thanks it for talking. Though. It's been a pleasure. I've loved it. Bob Spitz. That was good. I hope his daughter's happy. Led Zeppelin, the biography, comes out next Tuesday, November 9th. You can pre-order it right now wherever you get books. Uh, Go to podswag.com slash WTF to get our new merch. We've got the holiday sweatshirt sweaters. There's there's sweatshirts with with sweater patterns on them. We've got the new Hawaiian Sammy and Buster shirt and the bundle packages of some of our old favorites. That's podswag.com slash WTF or go to WTF.com pod.com and click on the merch tab a french fry tray seriously fish and chips tray and a cup here's some guitar Fonda, cat angels everywhere. (laughs) 